impact and fixed spec, this is Founders Anonymous, the podcast that helps you move your business up a gear. I'm your host, David Trott. And I'm Chris Lees. Hi, and welcome to Founders Anonymous. I'm Chris Lees, and coming up this week, marvel in wonder as David and I reinvent whole industries with almost zero knowledge or understanding whatsoever. And laugh your socks off as David tries to describe the whole of Twitter in 280 characters or less. Sitting next to me at an appropriately social distance, of course, is David Trott. David, how have you been so far this week? Yeah, I've had a good week again. It's been good. Yeah, we managed to get a babysitter for the first time in two years yesterday. So yeah, my partner and I went out to a friend's 40th birthday, which was, yeah, just brilliant. More of that. We need more of that in our lives. Is it unfair to say that you are a little bit worse for wear this morning? I'm, I don't know if I'm hungover, if I've got long COVID, or if I just have a three-year-old. <laughs> I don't know. It's one of those. I it, could, it could be a combination the, of all of them. The symptoms are identical for all three, I think, actually. <laughs> but, uh, but awesome. All right, great. Well, I'm, I'm very pleased for you that you managed to go away. <laughs> Thanks. Chris and I got together earlier this week to plan the topic for this week's podcast. I know it doesn't sound like we plan things, but we do. And Chris, you mentioned a book called Blue Ocean Strategy by W. Chan Kim and Rene Mobourne. I don't know how to pronounce that name. We'll put it in the show notes. So I went and bought a copy. I opened it at a random page and I found them talking about municipal bus services in the USA at the turn of the century. Uh, I immediately closed the book. Chris, what the hell is all this about? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for buying the book. And I'd recommend everybody who's listening to this goes and buys the book because it's a very good book. We'll leave a, a link in the, in the show notes. Uh, but essentially, uh, this is really just a continuation of the conversation that we started for the last couple of weeks, really, about yeah. products and how you go about defining products and how you make yourself stand out from the competition. Yeah. And the whole idea of blue ocean strategy, so a blue ocean is defined in the book as an uncontested market space. It's a place where um, it's the opposite, actually, of a red ocean. A red ocean is one where there's lots of sharks coming in, snapping at your heels, vying to take away your business. Normally, it's based on price. You know, that really horrible cutthroat competition world. Yeah, crowded marketplace. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So a blue ocean strategy is one where there's uncontested market space. The authors have a fantastic phrase for this, which is you make the competition irrelevant, which I absolutely love. I love, yeah. that, I love that idea. So first thing to say is that blue oceans almost by definition don't exist yet, because if they did, people would be in there. Right? Right. And so your job as a business owner is to identify a new market space that you can move into that gives you that head start. You want to be in the blue ocean yourself with nobody else around you. Yeah. And, the, and one of the key ideas that comes out in the book is the idea of um, what's called a four actions framework. So um, they say, well, what you should do is you should analyze the way that your industry behaves today. Because most companies within a given industry all tend to behave in a very similar way. And by analyzing these things, you work out you know, the consistent patterns out there and you can now take action against them. You can either eliminate things that are really just adding cost and not actually benefiting your customers at all. Yeah. You can reduce things deliberately against your competition, perhaps streamline the offerings to, again, reduce your cost if that's possible. Or again, get rid of things that your customers aren't valuing. You can raise things above the industry standard. 
So again, if a customer likes something about your product, you can raise the standard above the, the normal, or, and this is the bit that requires a little bit of imagination, you can create brand new things, things that have never been experienced in your industry before. And so really it's a combination of those things. It's eliminate, reduce, raise, and create. Those four things are the things that you want to try to um, look at to set yourself apart from your competition. And the end goal that you're going for here is to differentiate based both on price and value for your customer. And we, we've all experienced that situation, right? You know, you, you, something new comes out and you look at it and you go, well, hang on, this is cheaper than the, everything that I'm paying right now and it's way better for me. And that's what we're trying to aim for, is that blue ocean. Cool. Okay. okay, so this is this is different to the, the the sort of standard industry approach of creating a new product or service, where you look at what everyone else is doing and figure out if you can do the same. Yeah, exactly. It's it, absolutely right. It's it's almost 180 degrees different from that. It is you deliberately want to stand out. It is also not a strategy, by the way, of asking your customers what it is they want yep. and doing exactly that. The better question is. Which parts of the existing industry do you get value from and which bits do you not get value from? Yeah. So this all sounds ever so abstract at the minute. So what I want to try to do is try to apply this to some real world industries that David and I know almost nothing about, but we, yep. we feel entirely qualified uh, to, to trash on, on this podcast. Right. And okay. so drawing on my own experience, earlier this week, I went to a theme park with my, my daughter's um, and so I thought, right, let's let's reimagine what theme parks might actually be like under this strategy. And then on the way home, we stopped off for a fish and chips uh, for for dinner, right? So we'll use that as a as another example. So two completely different types of businesses reimagining a theme park using the strategy and reimagining a fish and chip restaurant. How would you go about it? Right, I'm probably the last person you should ask about theme parks. Any of my friends that are listening to this will know that I despise theme parks and everything about them. My ideal theme park is one where there's nobody else there and all the rides are replaced with sofas. <laughs> right? That's that's my ideal theme park. So, okay. so tell me about it. Tell me about your experience. How 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 was your time at a theme park this week? I uh, I got that sense of a theme park being a gut-wrenching siege of the of the emotions. The idea of going to a theme park with my nine-year-old twin daughters is awesome. I love that idea, you know, them just having all sorts of fun. The reality is so much different. Right, it is, you know, the queues which start at about sixty to seventy minutes for any sort of minor ride, and these rides take, you know, ten seconds. And actually, you know, you end up at the end of the day saying, "No more rides, kids," because we simply can't wait in the queue long enough. Yep. To, to right, and so the whole experience is much better in theory than it actually is in practice. So, if I were to take that experience and think about. What is it from a blue ocean strategy perspective? What is the one thing that I will try to change? Cues. If there was a theme park where, let's imagine for one minute, you actually enjoyed the ride stay, yeah, which okay. apparently you don't. Apparently you just prefer the park benches. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you actually, if you went along to the theme park and every single uh, ride was a maximum wait time of, let's say, 10 or 15 minutes, yeah. that would be amazing. That would feel like a completely different experience. Yeah. I would absolutely love to do that, right? Um, so that would be something that you are significantly going to improve about yeah. a theme park, right? 
some of the things that you might want to remove or eliminate, and remember this is mostly about reducing cost. So I have never understood the idea of rides where they take your photo partway through the ride. I can't believe anybody's going to pay, you know, £10 for me going down the log flume. If nobody's buying it, get rid of it. Same thing, you know, standing in queues, people are trying to hawk digital photos of you. Get rid of it. What's the point? Any, anything um, which is, you know, targeted at uh, souvenir shops or anything like that, there's stuffed animals coming out the wazoo, right? Um, <laughs> I'm surprised there's room in there with all your ices, frankly. <laughs> um, do you really need that? Does that? Is that really a money spinner? Is is that where people are actually earning their money? Maybe it is, but if it isn't, it's also a massive cost for them staffing it, uh, filling it with the merchandise in the first place. Um, all of the uh, all of the food and drink is notoriously expensive. Yeah. Um, you get ridiculous add-on packages like jump to the front of the queue for £95 each, having already bought your way into the park. So, as a family of four? £400. Wow, okay. Yeah, yeah. It's just, just like, and it seems to me as if they are almost trying to ration access in, in some ways. It's, all, it's almost as if they believe that the, the price is no object. A theme park which is a little bit more efficient, where you can get on rides much faster, maybe I would be willing to pay a premium for that, right? Because I actually know that the end experience that I'm looking for, which is to go on lots of rides and have fun with my kids, uh, is the thing that I'm actually going to walk away with. Sure. What, what does strike me as being uh, true though, is if there are efficiency experts who can look at things like airlines and work out how to turn an aircraft around super quick time, pretty sure they can do the same thing for roller coasters if they really wanted to, right? Mm. The roller coasters leave every minute or so. They only take about a minute to go, go around. So how the heck do you end up with an hour-long queue? Boggles the mind, frankly. There's got to be an awful lot of inefficiency there that they can just strip out somehow. Um, and, and frankly, if, if everybody was moving through the parks much faster because they're not waiting for the queues, maybe there's a half-day pass, which actually means you can get double the number of people in through the door because they, they ride the same number of rides in a more condensed period of time, mm. right? So this Blue Ocean strategy, and these are just ideas kind of off the top of my head, but the Blue Ocean strategy really does talk about coming up with a completely different experience for people, and that's what I'm describing. It's not a tweak around the edge. It's something that says people value going on the rides in theme parks. That's why they're going. Make that the number one priority for people. Everything else, strip it away. Yeah. Remove it because that's not actually core to the experience and see if you can make that business model work. Yeah, cool. So some of this isn't so much about the functional side of it, i.e. how you get from one ride to another or how long it takes to queue. Some of this is just about the, the softer elements, the, the whole experience. So it feels like theme parks are almost similar to budget airlines in that if you want something, you've got to pay for it. Yeah. And it's, it, the inconvenience is almost priced in and you have to buy your way out of that. Yeah. Right? Um, and that is a very different experience to, for example, the more uh, high-end or luxury airlines where the the convenience is priced in and nothing is, is too much trouble mm. and you're supplied with free drinks and free snacks and, you know, all, all this sort of stuff. Is there a way of using this strategy, for example, on a theme park, which is about looking at the softer elements, either the experience and saying, right, what we're going to deliver actually is a really top-end experience where nobody feels like they're being constantly fleeced by paying 10 quid for a cup of Coke or whatever it happens to be. You know, the, some of the inconveniences that go along with running a theme park, because 
things like the number of people we can get on a ride and how long it takes for the ride to go around. They're, they're sort of immovable bottlenecks that we can't do anything about. So there's always going to be some of that inconvenience. So what we're going to do instead is focus on the things that we can control, i.e. we're going to just spend a thousand quid a day on bottles of water and just walk around the park handing them out to people in queues and making sure people have got snacks and all that and give them free photos and make them feel valued so they don't mind so much that they're queuing is that a way this strategy could be used as well yeah very very possibly it's, it's all about creating a different a different experience in this particular case i'd suggest that, that may not work because the cost associated with just handing out bottles of water and stuff like that right well, that, that will create a value differentiator. It would also drive up the cost pretty significantly. And it will, it will become an ultra-exclusive club at that point. Um, I think it, was, it would be much better for people to try to offset the, the cost by getting more people in. As a business model, this is, right? So yeah. if you were to keep the same ticket price, for example, but restrict it to half a day, but in that half a day, it's more concentrated, then you've got double the number of people, theoretically double the, the amount of incoming revenue, and therefore you can afford to release some of that back into improving the experience. Okay, what about fish and chip shops? So fish and chip shops are actually kind of like, they're slightly different, right? Because there's, there's a lot of things that are, that are going for fish and chip shops. There's a very limited menu. The question really is just the size rather than exactly what it is that I'm gonna get. It's also kind of cheap, cheap and cheerful. So what you can't really do, I don't think, with fish and chip shops is go down. I think that the way to reimagine fish and chip shops is make a premium service to go up a little bit. And in some ways, this is very similar to what Harry Ramsden's chain in the UK did. You try to make a whole experience of going to, to, to the fish and chips. So it becomes a sit down restaurant. What you want to try to do is try to pitch it as being cheaper than a high-end posh restaurant but with that kind of level of service so imagine that gordon ramsay opened a fish and chip restaurant what would gordon ramsay do like that's what i'm, I'm suggesting you try to try to aim for with fish and chips yeah an okay. experience you're maximizing that you raise the price up because it is an experience and he's getting something more out of it you create new things that you don't get from just takeaway. But at the same time, you, you can afford to do that because the input into that business, the fish and chips, is still quite a cheap thing for you to produce. Yeah. So if you can do it profitably at takeaway prices, you can certainly do it profitably at a sit-down restaurant price. The premium that you can charge for the, um, for the restaurant price is compensating you for the extra effort that you're putting in to that premium service. Yeah. Okay. So I guess my next question would be, how, how do you figure this stuff out? So I have got a dream to open a fish and chip shop, let's say, but I want to be in a blue ocean of my own. Mm. How do I figure out what I should be eliminating, what I should be reducing, what I should be raising and what I should be creating? Is it as simple as just going around to customers and saying, what really pisses you off about buying stuff from a fish and chip shop? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, uh, part of me is, is screaming, tell David to go to every single fish and chip shop in the country which I'm sure you'd like to do. Happily market, do market research and all that sort of thing. But it's like we talked about in, a, in other podcasts, I think it's about talking to people and asking open-ended questions and getting their feedback, right? So what is it that you, what is it about the convenience of fish and chips? You know, what emotions does it spark in you? Maybe you remember going to the seaside one time. And so that particular food strikes some sort of emotion with people. Is it a comfort food thing? And if so, what can you do with that? 
I think that you also need to think kind of around the meal itself. What drink do people normally have with fish and chips? What would they actually want? Could you do something almost premium around his, his like, like you go to a fancy restaurant and you have a wine selection to go with your meal. Maybe there's a soft drink selection that goes with, oh, you want the battered haddock? Okay, you should try, <laughs> you know, iron brew. Um, you know, maybe you could go nuts with one particular element, like, you know, you, you go all in on mushy peas <laughs> and you do multiple different varieties of mushy peas or something like that. I, I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, it's sure. all about differentiating the experience. You want it to still be demonstrably a fish and chip restaurant with something extra, some je ne sais quoi. Uh, uh, <laughs> okay, cool. You were not expecting me to bust into French. No, I was quite impressed with your accent as well. I have to say. <laughs> um, and just to clarify, there is no food out there that Iron Brew doesn't go with. It is the king of drinks. Okay. Well, right. I know a few sort of very good fish and chip shops, and I'm going to spend some time thinking about what makes them good. Listeners, tell us your favorite fish and chip shop. Who's good? Who's doing something different? Tell us your favorite theme park. Who's doing something different? More importantly, tell us what pisses you off about all of those things. Uh, podcast at impactbizbiz.co.uk. Cool. Okay. Do you think we've done... Uh, Blue Ocean Strategy Justice. I, I do not think that we've done Blue Ocean Strategy Justice. I think we've scraped the surface. It's a fantastic book. I really would recommend it. Uh, but please, please do do check it out. I apologize if I have butchered their strategy. No, not <laughs> at all. And, and importantly, if Chris, you could just remind everyone who wrote the book. <laughs> <laughs> it is Chan Kim and Renee Moore book. <laughs> okay, we'll write that in the show notes. <laughs> So one of the things that's happened to me as I spend more time around David uh, is that I in turn spend more time on social media, um, which means that I see his nonstop stream of, um, uh, let's just call it content, uh, on his Twitter feed, which is uh, at Impact Group DT. So David clearly spends his life on social media. Uh, so we thought we'd try out a new segment here where David tells us what's been happening in the Twitterverse this week. Bit of a challenge, though. You have to do it in 280 characters or less. God, God. Okay. Um, look, I, I've, I kind of feel the need to point out that I don't spend my life on park benches and I don't spend my entire life on social media. I feel this is, this is giving the wrong impression of my personality. Or in fish and chip shops. Or in fish and chip shops. Okay. Um, all right. So what's happened on Twitter recently in 280 characters or less? You've already gone over 280 I've, characters. I have, <laughs> So a load of things have happened in the last seven days on Twitter that can kind of broadly be termed or, or categorized as a whole load of culture war bullshit, a whole load of remarkable fragile masculinity and fleets have disappeared. I think if I was going to summarize Twitter in three headings, that they're the three things. Okay. Um, the culture war, I kind of don't want to talk about because the whole point of a culture war is that people talk about it and that's how it perpetuates. So there's a whole load of culture war bullshit out there that you can go and find out about if you want to, but I'm not going to talk about it. What I want to talk about is fragile masculinity. And this has been a remarkable week okay. for people with very brittle senses of their own masculinity lashing out at other people and creating scenarios in which they feel that they are the majestic winners. Right, so let me tell you what I'm talking about. So there are three there are three stories this week. First is just that awful bloated corpse of a man, Piers Morgan, who seems to have a habit of every time there is a successful woman in the news, he has to have a take on it that slags them off. 
I'm not going to profess to know where it comes from. I just imagine it comes from a very sort of fragile sense of, of his own self-esteem. So Simone Biles, US gymnast, yep. uh, stepped away from the Olympics, uh, citing a mental health. Now that, she is, firstly, she is phenomenally successful, like mm-hmm. an extraordinarily successful gymnast, and took a very bold and brave step in highlighting that her mental health is important and needs to be looked after and that is an important thing that we should all do that is worth countless gold medals as far as i'm concerned the fact that she's able to take that step talk about it publicly and highlight that issue for everyone else is just inspirational but of course it isn't for for corpse man morgan right i can't remember what he said something like she's let a team down she's let a country down it's not it's not heroic like do you know what just fuck off piers where's your medals then piers when was the last time you did any exercise yeah exactly so and it's just symptomatic of this fragile masculinity that is just everywhere on twitter and it goes back to the outrage thing we spoke about a few episodes ago where these things put are put out there and people who are fairly normal like me react to it and it amplifies the message and all that sort of stuff but so so that's fragile masculinity number one piers morgan then there is i don't even know his full title digby jones i think he calls himself lord digby jones is he in the house of lords i think he might be in the house of lords he was the former director general of the cbi i think Mm -hmm. i don't i don't really understand what he is but he put out some obnoxious tweet about Alex Scott, the football pundit, about how she doesn't pronounce the G's at the end of words. And just this god-awful snobbery, sneering uh, at somebody who, again, like Simone Biles, is remarkably successful, has represented a nation. She does extraordinarily good punditry on the BBC. And of course, fragile masculinity comes stomping over with his powdery tweed bullshit and decides to slag her off because of the way she talks again you and Piers Morgan can both fuck off I've had enough of it and then that leads us on to the third fragile masculinity which is my absolute favourite have you heard of someone called James Melville I have not right okay that's fine because I don't really know who he is either other than he he writes stuff and he writes stuff on Twitter and he has I think it's fair to say fairly questionable views on COVID and on lockdown and there's something that happens so when you when you are in this reactionary group of people I think what what we need to realise is is that group of people whether they happen to be sort of questionable views on lockdown whether they're anti-vax whether they're anti-mask whether they're 5G conspiracy theorists or whatever their whatever their flavour of nutcase happens to be they are very loud on social media but they're mercifully and thankfully relatively few in number so what you end up with is this false impression that there are loads of people with this view okay as long as you only spend your time on social media right. the second you step out into the real world you go fuck me most people are fairly normal aren't they yeah um and that, and what I think happens is these people get hyped up on social media into believing that the entire world is supporting them. And then they go out and they embrace the real world and they realise, fucking hell, <laughs> I don't have as much support as I thought I did. So what happened this week is James Melville put out a tweet that I think is one of my favourite tweets of 2021 so far. I'm going to read it to you. Let me, let me pull up the tweet here. So his tweet reads... Just popped into a local butcher's shop in Fife, and the butcher said, Are you James Melville from Twitter? I love your feed. What you're doing is amazing. Keep going. 
This sort of thing is happening a lot now. It's both discombobulating and heartening in equal measure. So that explains a tweet that I saw from you, which, which I read completely and totally out of context and thought, what the hell is David on about? Where you just said, and who is the butcher, Albert Einstein? <laughs> right. Well, like, it wasn't associated with a thread. It wasn't like, it was like, no, it wasn't responding to anything. It was just on its own. I'm like, all right, David, you lost it. <laughs> so so this, is, this is my favorite thing, right? So there is this, there is this historical copy pasta that exists online. Um, from, oh God, I can't remember when it first came out, 20 years ago or so, um, where a story is created and the format is always the same. There is someone who feels that they are oppressed and there is someone that they feel is the oppressor and then there's an audience, mm -hmm. right? And the story is always the same. So I think the original instance of this meme was something like there was a professor who was oppressing Christians by saying that, you know, evil is proof that there is no God. And then this plucky young student put his hand up and in one fell swoop managed to shatter the professor, this this learned academic's entire worldview. And the academic ran out of the room in tears and then everyone in the room clapped. And that plucky young student's name, Albert Einstein. And like, this means oh, created. Right, okay. So everyone then shares it, go, oh, look, look what happened to Albert Einstein. Do you know this story? Oh my God. Um, and the format is always the same. So this has sort of been roundly mocked that every, every time someone creates this narrative of, you know, I'm an oppressed group and these are the oppressors and here's how everyone recognises my brilliance. And you see it all the time. You will see hundreds of tweets from anti-vaxxers who say something like, I was challenged by a, a street warden in the town centre the other day who was encouraging people to get the vaccine. And I said, do you not know it's got aluminium in it and it'll kill you? And then everyone sitting outside Costa stood up and applauded me. Like, it, all, it is always the same format. Okay. Um, and it's kind of that... <laughs> That twin combo of, and then everyone clapped, and that child's name, Albert Einstein. <laughs> the, the Twitter just went into meltdown over this James Melville tweet because it was like, and then the sausages stood up and clapped, and that butcher's name, Albert Einstein. Uh, it's just, okay. you, you take, you lampoon this ridiculous scenario that I don't know how, I don't know whether this happened or not. You know, if I was, if I was a betting man, and I am, I'd probably say it didn't. Mm. But... It, it kind of feels like he's gone out into the world with these mad views, mm. realised that no one gives a shit, and then invented a scenario that he's posted about in, as if to say, look, it isn't just nutters on Twitter that think I'm right. It's this, it's this butcher in Fife that thinks I'm right. And it's, it's easily disprovable as well, right? Because there's, yeah. there's a limited number of butchers in Fife. And in fact, a newspaper in Scotland, I haven't, but a journalist from the National a newspaper in Scotland did phone every single butcher oh, in five really? to say, do you know who James Melville is? Has he been in your shop recently? Every single one of them said, I don't know who that is. I've never heard of him. He's never come in here. I wouldn't recognise him. Every single last one awesome. of them. Awesome. Awesome. Um, it just encapsulates the absurdity of how that fragile masculinity plays itself out. Yeah. And how easily it can be sort of chopped down and how the best response to all of this stuff isn't the sort of natural outrage that I default to. It's just ridicule and remembering that most people are relatively sane and don't spend all your life on Twitter because that's not what the real world's like. So go out and experience life and realise that there's, there's tremendous hope and humanity is a good thing by and large, even if there are these minority of, of just awful 
dreadful, hateful bellend. You know what I'm going to take away from this, this story, which, by the way, is significantly over 280 characters, <laughs> um, is a Twitter is clearly an in-joke, <laughs> right? And in order to be able to contribute meaningfully in 280 characters, you have to have been on Twitter for many, 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 many years and understand everything there is in order to be able to make those witty one-liners. It's much harder than you think. Yeah, it is. It is. But, you know... Join in. It's the only way to get involved. Come join us. I'll teach you all the shibboleths. I'll, I'll just, you know, every single tweet that I see now, I'm just going to say, and the child is Albert Einstein, and just wait for the, the likes to roll in. That's and then, I guess, finally, and then Fleet's disappeared. Oh. And that's all we need to say about that. I don't, I don't know what Fleet is. Okay. <laughs> so that's it for this week. Thanks to everyone for listening. And for everyone that gets in touch, we love getting your emails. Keep them coming. If you've got a story or want to ask us a question, uh, message us. Message podcast directly. Uh, our email address is podcast at impactbiz.co.uk. Get in touch with us via social media. We're at Founders and on Pod on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. And don't forget to subscribe, review our show on Apple Podcasts, uh, follow us on Spotify or whatever your preferred podcast player is. And we'll be back next Thursday with another episode. Have a great week. See you later. That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Founders Anonymous is an impact and fixed spec production. Oh, <laughs>